0: Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Vertical Street Ventures, where we talk to top experts and seasoned investors to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and a written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Hello, everyone,
1: and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. My name is Peter Pomeroy, and I am your host. Today, we have Jake Marmelstein with us. Jake is the founder of Groundbreaker, a real estate technology company. Prior to Groundbreaker, Jake held a number of roles involving real estate and technology, supporting growth of early stage digital technology ventures. In 2011, he started his real estate career while underwriting distressed hotel investments for Watermark Capital Partners, a private REIT based out of Chicago. Jake is a graduate of the Cornell University, of, excuse me, of Cornell University with a concentration in real estate finance. At Groundbreaker, Jake owns the company. Uh, owns the company strategic vision, and investor relations. Jake, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Peter. Happy to be here.
1: Did I miss anything in your uh, bio that you want to bring up?
2: Well, the hotel school at Cornell is a fantastic school. We recently had a 10-year reunion. Reminds me of how lucky I was to be able to go to such a good university to build that foundation on real estate.
1: Yeah, it is a terrific school. All right, well, let's get into it. So your company, Groundbreaker, just to kind of provide context, For uh, I think some of the other questions, then we'll dig into like what Groundbreaker does, like really kind of in in more detail, but so that our listeners understand what does Groundbreaker do, you know, kind of a few sentences.
2: So Groundbreaker uh, simplifies the process of really raising money from investors to do a syndication or fund. Now, it's a software. So inherently, it gives the person using it some structure, and it simplifies what they have to do from raising the capital to marketing the deal to their investors to being able to close the capital, do everything compliant, report to investors, and also send them funds and manage documents after a deal is fully closed and operating. And we're also building on that continuously to be able to help our customers grow. So the company is always changing and evolving.
1: Excellent. So let's go back in time. How did your vision for Groundbreaker manifest? Like What was going on where you were like, This is a problem that needs to be solved or whatever the motivation was.
2: Yeah. So originally, the whole um, genesis came from my own experience, like working in the field and working at a REIT. I was underwriting. I was doing deals. I was actually having to manage a lot of the back office data in Excel, and I was frustrated. I found it overly complex and time-intensive, a lot of data mired in spreadsheets looking for documents. So I was like, there has to be a better way to do this. And none of the technology was available at the time to make it easy for you to find your information, organize it. So that's kind of what seeded the idea behind Groundbreaker.
1: If I can ask, so what year was this when you were like, hey, there's got to be a better way?
2: That was in really like the first first experience I had in real estate in 2012.
1: Okay. All right. And so you were working, where were you working again?
2: This was a company uh, called Watermark Capital Partners. It was a REIT. Right, and you were focused on buying distressed hotels.
1: Yes. So this is, and and I would imagine the opportunity, were the opportunities, there are a lot of opportunities then still coming out of the financial crisis or was that, what was the environment like
2: for for your business? So we were having, we were seeing a ton of distressed deals, mid-scale hotels across the United States in the Midwest, the Northwest. There were deals in New Orleans. There was a lot of distressed stuff, whether it needed CapEx or it was an independent hotel that needed to be reflagged and improved through different capital improvements. And we just figured, you know, buy them at that point in the market where the market cycle was down and then be able to hold these assets as the market was coming back. And you could increase the prices and the occupancy on the hotels. Right. And so it's just a, a, a really simple play of buying these great deals and doing that reflagging asset management and rinse and repeat with a limitless amount of equity basically and our problem was all of the data and the deals that we were seeing
1: in 2012 for for the you know hotel business in terms of acquiring distressed hotels did you sense your team sense that there was like a big growth opportunity for you that would at some point change in the sense that like there'd be less distressed hotels or the economy would be better and they'd be doing better. And so therefore, were you in, like you mentioned, the limitless equity, were you in a massive growth, like kind of
2: like phase then? Yeah, portfolio had, I believe we had like less than 10 deals in the portfolio. Okay. So it was a pretty early time for the firm. Okay. And the, the partnerships that we had to provide the equity and the investment process that we took, it really relied on us being able to quickly do back of the envelope calculations to deals, paper them up, present them to our investment committee, and be able to discuss whether we wanted to take that deal into the portfolio or not and put forward the work based on the returns of risks that it had.
1: All right. So okay. So like where I was going is mm-hmm. it sounds like you're you're the the REIT you were working with they were focused on growth acquisitions etc and and probably like because no company has infinite amount of internal resources less focused on the back end processes etc to support those deals and is it fair to say then that you were starting to catch wind of like you've got the growth stuff that's great but also there's like the back office management stuff and like maybe from your perspective they weren't as aligned as they, they could? Be. I mean, you understand there's always a priority of what the business has to do, but you were seeing that, hey, there's, a, there's an issue, there's a gap that can be satisfied.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the area where it had the most pain was where I was having to underwrite all these deals and then put them into PowerPoint presentations and really just go through them. And my boss would go through them with a fine tooth comb. And there was just so much to be done to make these presentations look good and prepare them with the right data to be able to share with the investment committee after we did our underwriting. And that was the first solution that we ended up rolling out, actually. Was it in Groundbreaker, you know, rolling back before we had the whole investment management suite and reporting suite and distributions, we started with the fundraising part. And we gave people a simple deal builder that they could use to basically put their offering in a nice format on the internet where any investor could access it at any time they wanted to. So you do away with so much of the friction in the formatting and design of even creating an offering and then getting the information out there to people so that they could review it on their own time. So it sounds
1: like the first kind of pain point that you went after is 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 just what you described which is the offering itself yeah. having it like you know available to potential investors 24/7 and then I'm betting with groundbreaker then you could like kind of track who was clicking on the the offering memory and the presentation to see, you know, to, you know, if you have a thousand people in your database and you see that a hundred or two clicking on it, let's connect with those hundred.
2: Yeah. You know, that's where then you started to develop a CRM and a contact software and, <laughs> you know, the list continues.
1: Okay. So, th- so that's where I'm, so that's kind of where I'm going. Yeah. So when you started to evolve on the groundbreaker, you kind of the different products or, you know, value propositions it would provide, was that based on your starting place of the offering memorandum, or was that going back to your time at the REIT saying, oh, these were the other pain points that I see, and can I get these, let's say, five pain points into my groundbreaker offering? Where was the motivation for like, if, if like, you know, product extensions?
2: Well, even if people think they know how to build a software product, and, and it really does depend on the audience and the segment of the market you're selling it to. So that process evolved in how we went to market and met people. And those people had an impact on the product that we built because we listened to our customers. and We built for a certain segment of the market. Building for a re specifically, like using all of my experience there, it's funny, in technology, you, you, you just, you can't really apply as much of what you know, even if you intend. What do you mean by that? Well, even if you intend to build a, a certain feature, it's always a surprise what users end up needing. Right. That you didn't know that they needed. So that's a long winded answer to, you know, I did see those pains on the other side. Things like document management, where our database was a total mess, things like doing calculations of distributions and paying investors was also a big pain. Mm -hmm. But the way we ended up building the solution and the order we did it was based on our customers' feedback.
1: All right. That's great. So, how did, like, talk about the transition from being an operator at a REIT to, Starting a technology company that is involved in real estate, but still like, unless I miss it in your bio, I don't think you are a uh, you know a programmer
2: or coder or whatever. Like, so how does that happen? How does that work? (laughs) Yeah, and uh, at the time, I actually started to learn how to code and dabbled a little bit in it, but quickly realized that was not going to be my forte. So I stuck to the business side. Right. I got lucky and partnered with a technology entrepreneur who. I met while I was working with a colleague from, from Cornell, from university. That's kind of what kind of started it and sparked that that early partnership where I got somebody who would believe in the concept and help to build the technology with me.
1: What is, I mean, so I'm not a technologist. That's probably pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. But I have to imagine that if I was, you know, had a, had a vision for some piece of technology to do something, or let me just ask the question. Are there like, do you have to like learn how to, Restate your vision for a product so that a programmer can understand it in a way that they can then take what you said, understand the ultimate outcome, and then build some technology that'll like meet that. Like, what's that process like?
2: Yeah, it's a lot of why. It's like you pick up a bunch of different skills as an entrepreneur if it's just you and some other person, which early, you know, it was. So I had to learn how to do wireframing you know, what's the first box that a user is going to click on and describing the scope of the feature, which is basically what product management is all about. You talk to the users or use your own professional experience to dictate what you're going to build and what needs you need to check off. And then you have to create the visuals and be able to tell the story of the user experience. So the person that's developing it, not only has the idea of what they need to build there, but the way they need to build it so that they can build on top of it. Because you know the Minimally viable product of one thing ends up becoming something much bigger and more robust later on,
1: right, <laughs> and then I mean like again, this may be like stating the obvious, but let's say you've got an idea for like you know product and it's got these you know you know ten features. Did you in your journey come across limitations where the the programmer was like, we could do you know the, the first five features, yeah, we can do that. the last five would like take a huge amount of time or a huge amount of capital or a specialized person. And so Jake, we need to like put that on the shelf for a while. And what was that like? If that was the case, what was What was that like? <laughs>
2: you know, early on, it's like you have to kind of train your your muscle to pattern recognize when a software engineer is being legitimate with you and they've done the work or they're just full of shit. That took some learning, honestly. So I made you know some mistakes early on believing engineers and then learned over time that you have to kind of look at each situation differently and really understand your software and your architecture. And right. there's so much learning that you actually still have to have to be able to know what's, what's really going on. And I, I had a, a very good product manager at the company who could help to translate a lot of information to me. And it helped me learn what I needed to know and fill in my gaps. So now I'm confident when I'm faced with that situation, I know what questions to ask and how to dig in to really get to an answer.
1: That's awesome. I think one of the things that you just said that really like kind of hit me is you had to learn how to ask questions. I want to emphasize the value of asking questions because like for me, like I have you know 20 plus years of real estate, and a, but very diverse. And one of, you know, and it's always great. So you're in an interview, oh, my background is very diverse. And you hope that they like what you're, you're saying. But practically speaking, I think that what that's done is it's helped me to ask questions like lots of questions, and so you know that in itself is 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 an art. And I'm I'm also hearing that you like day one of this process, you know, you knew only so much about what is possible, both from a cost, the time, etc., in developing a product. But then day like you know a thousand or whatever, you knew a lot more, and so you could ask better questions. And really, and then if you were with an end, a programmer who said, "Oh yeah, no problem, no problem, no problem," you might start to say, "Well." I think I'm not so sure that that's the case. Does that sound correct with you? Or
2: Yeah, you can get to, I think, you know, you can get to a point where you develop enough knowledge to really know whether something is going to be complicated to execute or not complicated to execute based on your knowledge of the, of the, of the software. And it becomes, right. it becomes easier once you actually have a software application. If you're building something from scratch, right, it's tough. But you still learn enough where a lot of people... A lot of first-time entrepreneurs, and those who are listening to this and thinking about what I'm saying, it's like the first time you kind of have to learn by by trial and error. Not, no one teaches you this kind of stuff unless you're a programmer yourself,
1: right? So then, like, shifting for a second, yeah. share with us some of the biggest hurdles to like launching and kind of getting from launch to a moment where you're like, you know what, I think we're getting momentum with this. Not necessarily where you are today, but that you know launched to like where you were initi to where you were like, I think we're getting momentum.
2: Well, that was pretty immediate once we, we kind of redid our software. We launched it in Q1 of 2020. We had a lot of users signing up pretty quickly after we had launched. And we ran some marketing campaigns and did some PR and we were really getting a lot of users on the software using it, onboarding and everything. But there were kind of two ways of that actually, because I think, I think the commonality in all of the cases where groundbreaker really grew a lot was getting PR because our concept was so innovative at the time.
1: So, so less, less so about like the obstacles, more so like what I'm hearing is on the, wow, we we're getting some PR because we have a real, you know, a piece of innovation in the marketplace and people are, wow, liking it. So let's put the, you know, keep the pedal to the metal and, and grow.
2: The thing that the PR brought us and and the marketing brought us was leads and opportunities to do rapid customer discovery, market research. Early on, if we didn't have a product and we're just getting leads through the door, it's amazingly valuable to just talk to people and understand who they are and try to target which customer you're going after Mm -hmm. um, and what their needs are and what problems you're going to solve. And then the second it's like once you have a product, just getting the feedback and iterating from the market so you can refine. Because j- doing a startup is all about a process of small pivots and tweaks along the way until you get to a point where it really fits and clicks.
1: Okay. So talk talk a little bit more about that, maybe in the context of this next question, which is your process or how you dealt with refining your, your product and then saying, okay, like what we have is working. Now we're going to like add some some features and how do we prioritize this feature over this feature given that we can't do them all at once like how did you grow in a way that like allowed you as little downtime and inefficiency as possible <laughs>
2: well <laughs> i wish i could say that we did but there was a ton of inefficiency paid for learning right yeah you know we kind of at first just built what our customers wanted us to build and our software ended up having a lot of features. Some were custom and appropriate for some customers, whereas some were appropriate for others. And that really led to us having a code base that wasn't very solid and a lot of features that weren't being used. So we ended up having to scrap that and, and, and rebuild eventually.
1: So some iterations, sounds like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Lots of iterations. That's great. Yeah. It also sounds like you were really focused on the customer and less so on your vision for the product. And as a point of comparison, so like, you know, my company, we buy you know apartment buildings, add value, hold them, sell them. And it's really easy to have a vision for that, that is dominant over the vision of providing our investors with stable, consistent returns. And how do we solve for that? Right? So with you, it sounds a lot like you didn't have the issue of, I've got this dream. And I'm sure you did, but like, Uh, you know, you weren't like being led by a dream to like create this thing. You were, you know, create a product in your head. You were being led to create a product that really meets the customer's needs, your customer's needs. And you weren't afraid to say, you know what, this isn't working for our customers. Let's find some, you know, take it off the product plate and and focus on something else that better meets the customer needs. Is that, is that fair?
2: Yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of core to building a product that the market is going to to need and, and it's complex. You can listen to the customer, but you have to also listen to the data because what a customer says might not always be what ends up being valuable to them or what they're willing to pay for, in fact. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's constant iteration. I think that having the vision always in the back of your head and having it front and center for the team, but knowing where it is and how it's affecting your path eventually is really important. But you always have to start from the customer.
1: And it sounds like not just what they say, but what the data shows. Yeah. Right. Okay. So kind of like last question as it really kind of on the business piece, but, you know, and correct me if I'm not seeing this correctly, but your space has become more crowded. There's like syndication pro would be like a competitor of yours. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. So how do you compete and, or how are you different? Than just a syndication pro, not specifically syndication pro, but the other competitors. What's your point of differentiation?
2: So, you know, a lot of this comes down to market maturity and it's sort of looking at what does the customer really need and then honing in on that and delivering that really, really well. So, we identified that customers that are doing real estate investment who are small partners, small teams. Not big teams, not institutional teams, groups that are, you know, you and a partner to teams of 15, they want a snappy, quick, easy to use experience for their investors to invest with them and be able to check the portal for their documents and get paid. And we do that extremely well. Our software is very, very easy to use. That makes the user experience spot on for the customer. Groundbreaker is affordable. Our pricing doesn't increase with the equity under management on the platform. So the company can kind of understand what all their costs are from day one. And it's really easy to know how it scales with their business. And then, you know, a lot of the people that we work with are still small organizations. So they usually need a little handholding. They need help. They need a strong support team. They need somebody who's there to talk to their investors sometimes when they're having technical issues and having problems onboarding. Our team is, is is really second to none. The customer service is phenomenal, and we hold the investors' hand too, so the sponsor saves time there. Oh, that's great, uh, which is is pretty unique to Groundbreaker.
1: It's terrific. So again, I think a, a key theme here is is really focusing on your customer segments, whether that be the sponsor or the investors that are you know the sponsor has has brought in you know into their investment. All right. So last, last couple questions here. So, you know, prior to Chicago, you were in Puerto Rico. I think you, were, you were, were we also in Brazil and Europe? Yes, sir. All right. All right. All right. So focusing on Puerto Rico, you move, you go from Puerto Rico to Chicago. I think you might've moved in January. You know, that's a, that's a big environmental change. And maybe you're somebody who's just like kind of immune to like those kinds of changes. There are some people are out there and they're like that. I'm I'm not. What helped you the most with that transition?
2: Uh, going to the gym every day. All right. I had a gym in my building where I used to go to the office. I lived 10 minutes away. So I would bundle up and walk to the office and hit the gym early in the morning. And I'd feel fantastic and do a little meditation, <laughs> appreciate the opportunity that I have, even though it was cold <laughs> and it was dark outside. Right. So some, so some gratitude practice
1: as well as getting those
2: endorphins kind of optimized. Yeah, totally. It's all mental and the weather can really grind on you sometimes though. So getting out now, now that I live in Chicago, getting out and traveling is also really important. Seeing the sun when it's cold out.
1: Yes. Travel like period. I I live in, you know, just outside of San Francisco and we're in County and generally we have terrific weather, but You know, I need to hop on it. I'm like, you know, especially coming out of the pandemic and I've had jobs where I traveled like four days a week, but coming out of the pandemic, I was ready to buy a a ticket and, and get somewhere to just like
2: get some other exposure. Yeah. Where do you get to go? Where
1: did I go? So we focus on Phoenix and Tucson for, you know, property markets. And so certainly there we're expanding into some other markets or evaluating them. And then my family, they're all on the East coast. And then my wife's family, they're all in Cincinnati, Ohio. So you'd get California, kind of the Southwest for the Arizona, and then, you know, Midwest and Cincinnati is a fantastic city. And then, you know, New York, and actually to be very specific, Block Island, Rhode Island, which is just, just, so so the point is, it's a very different geographies and different cultures. And for me, I really thrive on having that exposure. So I was jumping at the the gate to get out of, you know, Dodge post-pandemic travel.
2: Oh, I totally hear you. Yeah, I made it back to Brazil at the end of uh 2021 to visit with our team who lives there. Okay. And they were still in the pandemic. Yeah. at that point, but things had kind of chilled out a little bit. Yeah. It was good to see things kind of going back to normal there.
1: Right. Yeah. All right, final question. You know, as you know starting a business, there's peaks, there's valleys you're in a unique situation in that like your company didn't start six months ago or a year ago. So you're getting traction. What are the top kind of the top pieces of, of advice that you would give our listeners on starting a business? Like no more than three. And that it doesn't have to be three.
2: On starting a business.
1: Yeah. Based on your experience.
2: Yeah. Customer segmentation is one of the most important things. Buyer segmentation is one of the most important things you can do, honestly especially you know in your market just know your market know your customer never think you have pinpointed it until until you really go deep and figure it out i think if that's like i'd rather just do one that's the one and have that one be yeah. sunk into their head because that's that one a lot of people make mistakes on and you know i have a buddy just he just raised almost 3 mil for his company and Still doesn't know what his customer is, but invest, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you got to go about that process and figure it out and never think that you know the answer until you have kind of gone through.
1: Right. As we talked before, I think before the show, kind of a spirit of curiosity Yep. about who are these people and all of your various customers that you might have in your whole value chain I and mean, who are, who they are and getting to know them. And, and, and to your point, I think, you know, never thinking that you do know because they're changing and You have to to be, it's a continuous process.
2: Just so we link it back to the product dev discussion, it's really about being efficient with your resources so that you can build something that a lot of people are going to love. And you have to start with a small number of people or a subset of people so that they really, really love what you're building. And then you can kind of expand out from there. Fantastic, thank you.
1: Jake, thank you for coming on the show. If listeners want to get a hold of you, how do they do that?
2: I'm really reachable on LinkedIn. You can also send me an email to jake at groundbreaker.co or go to our website.
1: Excellent. And for those listeners who would like to connect with me or be on the show, please feel free to shoot me an email at peter at northlightgrowth.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you all for listening and I wish you a fantastic week.
0: Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, Please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Subscribe too, so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to verticalstreetventures.com. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with our team on the website. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.